You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Let me invite you to turn with me in our text for this morning as we continue through this brief series in December, considering again that Jesus is our King. And in that, considering four different ways that He is our King this morning, that way being that Jesus is the King of joy. Our text for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This may sound strange and burdensome to some of you, but on most Sundays, I am aware, uh, sometimes painfully aware, that each sermon I preach could be my last. It could be my last because of sickness. It could be my last because of death. It could be my last because of something far worse, like some kind of failure. But that is something on my mind. And so I carry that with me into this pulpit so that I may do my best for our King, knowing that my best is never enough. And often I am concerned when I walk out of the pulpit. I say, Lord, let me have another shot at that. Let me try that again. But I'll tell you this morning, if this happens to be in God's providence, my last sermon, it's one even preached in the foolishness of preaching. It's one that I can be happy with. Because this topic of joy is something that I so desperately need. I need to know Jesus as the king of joy, as the king of my joy, and the king of our joy more and more. And so it is my sincere, sincere prayer that this sermon, this text, would do that work in me, and that it would do that work in you. This time of year, I'm often also aware of just how bizarre is this whole Christmas thing that we're doing Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the kinds of things that we just out of habit year by year without much thought do and how weird they are? Most of us cut down or buy a pine tree and carry it into our houses. We string up tacky lights on our houses. We hang up unwashed socks by the fireplace every year and then put them away without washing them. When the children are asleep on Christmas Eve, we go and fill them with candy and oranges and pencils and tire gauges. We spend weeks talking about this this round, magical man who travels with flying reindeer and then eats cookies and milk that we put out for him. Some of us say a tiny elf sits on the shelf and watches the children so that he can recon back to the magic man whether they've been good enough to get gifts on Christmas morning or not. That's weird. (laughs) But the good news is we don't really believe that, right? No, it's actually the part that you do believe that's even weirder. What we believe as Christians is incredibly, incredibly weird. Weirder than what we believe and do at Christmas time. Think about this. We believe that a glorious king of all the universe who wants for nothing 
decides to become a baby and is born into the world by a miraculous conception. Even though he is a majestic king, as a man on earth, he's a poor, unattractive construction worker who for three years tells everyone that he's God. He performs miracles like turning water into wine. He raises the dead. He even at one point picks up some dirt and spits in it and rubs on a man's eyes and heals him. And then not long after that, he's executed like a serial killer. Three days later, he rises from the dead. He walks through walls and doors to tell his friends that he's alive. And then he floats off into the sky. He says one day, when no one is expecting him, he will come back with storm clouds and angels to remake the earth and live there forever, but only with the people who believed him before he returned. And you believe this. But what is really astounding is that you and I believe this without ever seeing him, without ever hearing him. Now that, that is crazy. That is marvelously, wondrously crazy. And this morning, that is precisely what we want to look at as we have asked God to increase our joy in this crazy season. And so as we come to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we ask the Lord once again to help us. Our Father, we do ask you again. We could not ask you enough. Our hearts are dull. Our hearts remain somewhat dark by remaining sin, and we are in desperate need of your continual grace in our hearts. The world, the flesh, and the devil press in upon us. They threaten to take away our joy in you or cloud you from our vision. And so we pray that you would grow us, that you would remind us of just how wondrous you are, and that you would remind us in particular that our king, who is Jesus, is the king of joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to see three truths this morning to help us increase our joy as we follow this king of joy. And here's the first. As we think about this king of joy, we must remember what this text clearly says to us is that there's something profound that has happened in the heart of every Christian who knows Christ. And that is that we have not seen the king, but we love him. Perhaps that's a truth that we kind of take for granted, but it is an incredible reality in this text and throughout Scripture and throughout our experience in the Christian life that although you and I have not seen this king, we love him. This truth right here, it speaks to the utterly miraculous nature of Christianity. It is in this way, again, that Christianity is weird. It is strange. You just don't have this kind of experience almost anywhere else in life. Of course, there are shades of it, but in very rare occasions. 
I think about my life, I think, what else in my life is a little bit like this? I, I haven't seen him, but I love him. I can't come up with many. The only one that I really can come up with is uh, a painful memory, a painful memory from 2012 when we suffered a miscarriage. And many of you know what that's like. It's incredibly painful, 10 weeks. As a dad of five, I think about that sometimes. And my heart is filled with love. It's filled with love for a child that I've never seen. A child who, according to the word of God, is with Jesus in heaven. A sixth child. In addition to the five that we have here now, that one day I will see, and there is a kind of love. But that experience, that cannot touch what this is about, because this is something deeper than merely disconnected, long-lost miscarried love. Peter's readers that we read of here, those whom he's addressing, had not seen him with their eyes, but they had seen him with the eyes of faith. Listen to what he says as we pick up in verse 8. It's a broken bit of the passage. We're going to catch the front end in a moment, but we begin in verse 8 where he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Again, it's an incredible miracle of how this could happen. How did they come to love him, Jesus, the king of joy, without ever having seen him? Well, like all people, as Paul says in Colossians 1, they, like us, apart from Christ, were enslaved to sin, alienated from God, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, unable to see him, having not seen him, and yet they had come to love him. How did this happen? Well, when we back up and catch the context, we get at least three reasons that this happened. How did the king capture the hearts of people who had never seen him? Well, back up to verse three and notice that the king had given them new life. Verse 3 and 4, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That is a big reason to love a king, even, even if you've never seen him. But that's not all. He goes on in verse 5, and he says that this king had protected their very souls. He says that they, you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's another reason to love a king, even if you haven't seen him. But not only had he given them new life, not only had he without them seeing him protected their souls, having caused them to be born again and come close to him, but this king did something that no earthly kings do. He persevered them through many trials. 
by walking with them. Verse 6 and 7. In this, here's this theme of joy again, you greatly rejoice, even that though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at this future time and place when finally, when all is said and done, you will see him. Because of all of this and more, what does Peter say they do? He doesn't say they just know him. It doesn't say that they merely fear him. It says that they love him. This agape love that he's talking about here is especially interesting to us in this text because notice that he's using the word love as an indicative, not as an imperative. That means he's using it as a descriptor for them, not as a command to them. He doesn't say, though you have not seen him, you love him. He says, though you have not seen him, because of what he has done for you, it is evident in your life that you love him. It's a true reality evident in them when he says, you love him. It's similar to what happens uh, sometimes in our house uh, in the morning. I'm not much of a, of, a, of a morning person. And so usually Catherine is up mm, far earlier than I am, hours earlier. And usually a couple of the children are up on time like clockwork before I am. And they come down the stairs and they go into our bedroom and they climb into bed. And there they are with mom reading books early in the morning. Sometimes after I'm up, I pass back by the doorway and there they are snuggled up reading a book together. They're in absolute, complete bliss And you know what I say to them? I say, you love your mommy, don't you? And they say, yes, we do. I'm not saying to them, oh, you better love your mommy, shouldn't you? Because I'm making an observation. I'm not giving them a command. That's what Peter is doing here. He's making an incredible observation that although you have not seen him, You love him. We want this to be true of us. Don't you want this to be true of you? Could there be anything better in all the world that someone could look at you and say, oh, you love your king, don't you? And you say, yes, I do. And I haven't even seen him. That is how great he is. That is how lovable he is. That's how powerful and gracious he is. He is the king of joy and he makes us love him. But what do we want to do when we read this? We look into these words and we want it to be like a mirror. We want to see our own reflection in it. We know that's not always true for us. Sometimes our love wanes. Sometimes it goes up and down. It's hot and cold, but we pray, oh God, Make me love you, even though I haven't seen you. 
But we want to do what we can with God's help to do this very thing as an application of this text to our lives is to make love for the king a more and more observant quality of your life. The more that that is an observant quality of my life, it will glorify God all the more. And you know what else it will do? It will be good for other people. I want people to look at us and say, you love your king, don't you? And that's why I have rejoiced so many times over the last nine years when I run into people who are aware of us in the community, and that is precisely what they say. They say, I don't know why it is, but there is something about you. I don't know why you do what you do, but there is something different about those folks at Paramount Church. Now, we are wildly imperfect. We know that. We have a good sense of that, don't we? But even in the midst of our imperfections, just as these people who had their own imperfections, their own struggles, their own difficulties, we pray, God, make us people whose love for you is evident. Well, there's a logical question then for anyone who hears this and is attracted to it. You want this to be a part of your life. And it is the question, okay, so how do I grow my love for the king? Well, look next at the second truth that we see Peter talk about in reference to these believers, which we want to be true of us as well, which we know is true of us as well. He says next that we do not see the king now, but believe in him. It's a very similar statement. You can see the comparison between the the pieces. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Similar statement, but there are two important changes. Notice the two changes because they, they explode the, the joy and the truth of the text. When you see them, the two changes are timing and the connection that they have to their king. First, the timing. He says, though you do not see him now. Originally, he said, though you have not seen him in the past, you love him. But now he changes. He's talking about now for a specific reason. If you were to go back to the beginning of 1 Peter, you find in that, in that kind of salutation to them who they are, where they are, what they are. In particular, they're an audience of Christians who have been scattered by persecution and hardship. They are in incredible suffering and uncertainty. They are not much unlike even those that we tragically have seen on the news just yesterday or even in times past when a tornado is ripped through a community and and it seems as though all is scattered everywhere around town and the people are, are unsure of what to do next. These are the people that Peter is writing to. But listen to him. Listen to what he says to people who feel the pain of the fallen world, who feel the uncertainty, the confounding experience of being scattered away from your home, away from your friends. Peter is the consummate encourager. In these distressing trials, you want someone like Peter on your team. Why? It's because he not only sees the hard reality of the suffering now, though you do not see him now in the midst of your suffering, 
he sees even more clearly the hope that these people have in their suffering, and that is the connection to their king. The first connection we read about is the connection of love. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Now he says, though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Believe. Pistuo is the word. It is a word that means to entrust with implicit trust. In the midst of all of their scattered lives and hardship and trials and troubles in this life, in the here and now present, what did they do? They entrusted their precious lives to a precious king that they could not see even then. That's a miracle. They entrusted their precious lives to the precious king whom they could not see. Not unlike, though even greater than, the dozens of parents who were voyaging on the Titanic on April 15, 1912, when the Titanic hit that iceberg and sank to the bottom, those parents who, with their children, unable to save them, placed them into the arms of others in lifeboats to take them away, giving what was precious into the precious hands of those who could save. This is what they did. This is what we do. Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. How did Peter and his readers, how do we live with such hope as this? Well, here's how. It was because they lived by the unseen reality where God works most. Let me say that again. Write that down if you have a pencil. They lived by the unseen reality where God is at work most. Yes, they saw with their eyes, the eyes of their minds, of their brains, the harsh reality of the fallen world. They saw their families torn apart. They saw their lives being scattered. They saw their possessions being taken. They saw persecution coming and going and coming and going. But even more clearly, they saw with the eyes of their hearts, by faith, the greater reality of God's powerful, loving care in the midst of it because they believed in him. Because of the miracle of belief, because of the gift of faith in Christ given to them by the king of joy for their good and his glory, even then, when they didn't see him, they believed in him. I want to take you back to another text that we read last week because it stands to be repeated. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. It is a text so pregnant with truth that we must return to it over and over again so that we can understand these important truths of belief in this moment. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says this, Therefore... We do not lose heart. Capture the connection between that text and this text, between these people and those people, between this time and our time. 
Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. Do you see it there? Even in that one sentence, there's the seen reality and the unseen reality. And everyone must choose which reality they will live by. If you live by the seen reality, which is that our outer person is decaying, you will give in to despair. Everything will be uncertain. But if you live by the unseen reality, the one that is brought to you by grace in a king that you have not seen and you do not see now, but you love him and you believe in him, you will see that your inner person is being renewed day by day. And therefore, the decaying of the outer person will drift into the background of importance. It will not be quite so captivating. It won't be quite so painful. It won't be quite so alarming because you know that there is a bigger, better truth. And it's the truth of what's happening in the unseen. It goes on in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 4 and says it again another way. Hear it, believe it. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Even in these moments of affliction, even in the struggles of being scattered and persecuted and and tempted and tried and troubled, it is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. This is part of what they believed. This is part of what Peter means when he says, but you believe in him. You believe in what he's doing. You believe in his loving care for you. Because, verse 18, Paul says, we look not at the things which are seen. It doesn't mean that we ignore them. It doesn't mean that we blind our eyes from the harsh realities of the world. It means that we don't live by them. We don't gaze upon them and set our hope in them. We do not look at, gaze at, behold, hope in the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, they're just temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's no escape from this incredible, difficult glorious reality to the Christian life. We believe even when we don't see because we see with our hearts. What are the unseen things that are eternal? What are they looking at? They're looking through the promises of what God says he's doing and they believe him. When momentary light affliction comes, Peter's readers, in their belief and in their love for this king of joy, see that their momentary light affliction is producing for them something that cannot be compared. It's an eternal weight of glory that they will only know ultimately in the kingdom to come. But it gives them belief, it gives them love, it gives them stability, it gives them help and hope right here. Therefore, we apply this to our lives in a very simple way. Just as we want to make love for the king a more and more observant quality of our lives, we do that. How? We do that by trusting specific promises 
of God's care for us. So here's a good self-diagnostic inventory-taking time. The question is, how ready are you to do that? The fallen world stands ready at a moment's notice to press in. But how ready are you? How ready are you to counter in the pressing of the fallen world or the temptation or accusations of our enemy, the devil, or the other general hardships that are just part of life in this world? How ready are you to trust specific promises of God's care for you? Well, we have a book that is full of them. Therefore, we need to know this book. We need to know these promises. We need to have them on hand in our tool belt, in our holster, whatever metaphor you want to use. We want to have them on hand and ready to use. We need to do this together as a church. This is part of what we do in community group life. We sharpen one another. And we do it with the promises of God, the promises that we have come to believe and continue to believe, even when seeing him now is not so easy. We trust him because he has changed our hearts. Now, as I said earlier, Every single person needs a Peter on his team. And I'm going to show you why, at least one of the reasons why. And it is this, the final truth for us to see this morning is that our king grants us something. Yes, he has granted us to love him. He has granted us to believe in him. But there is something else. There's something else that is at the center of the Christian life Our king grants us full and glorious joy. Why do you need someone like Peter on your team? You need someone like Peter on your team because like God, Peter is heaven bent on Christian joy. Now, I've been preaching a lot of gladness lately. I don't know if you've noticed that. And it's true, but I'm doing that because every day I'm more and more convinced That happiness in Christ is the central pursuit of the Christian life. Because I have come to believe and more every day in my own life that God is glorified when we are made happy by him, by his promises, by his gifts, by faith in Christ. And I'm encouraged in this because that's what Peter thinks too. He points out here in the last part of our text this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1 with praise that they greatly rejoice. Listen to what he says. Let's go back to the beginning of the text and keep it all together because it works together. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He says, obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Did you hear that? He points out with praise on them, their great rejoicing. Literally, these words mean where he says, greatly rejoice is to be filled with delight. In their case, in the midst of trouble, You are greatly rejoicing. It's another miracle. This doesn't just happen in the world. It only happens where God is at work. 
But look at what he says about it. Look at what he says about their great rejoicing. See what you can learn from it. Tap into it. Listen to this. He says it is joy inexpressible and full of glory. He's linking together two important qualities of this joy to highlight what it really is all about. He says that you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. What does joy inexpressible make you think of? Where does joy inexpressible happen? Where does the Bible promise that inexpressible joy will take root and last forever? In heaven. He's talking about a kind of eschatological joy, an end times joy, a heavenly joy. That's why he also pairs it with glory. Those two things are together. The joy of people and the glory of God tied together. Inexpressible and full of glory. And that's why we say this morning in praise to our king, that our king is the king of joy because he grants us full and glorious gladness and joy in him. But wait for this. Here comes the kicker. We're gonna push it right over the edge if that wasn't enough. And it is in those words, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What is the ultimate outcome of Christianity? What is the ultimate objective of Christianity? What is Christ up to in your life and in the world? Where is all of this going? Peter tells us here what we read in many other places throughout the scriptures. It is all going to a place of inexpressible, glorious joy in Christ who saves our very souls. That's the whole of the life to come. And that is then now the pursuit of our lives in Christ. This is the pursuit that Peter is encouraging. It is what Peter is pursuing. And that's why we need someone like him on our team. When days are dark and temptations are, are hot and difficulty comes, we need someone who will remind us what this is all about and what is the answer to this world and to this life. And it's right here. It is inexpressible and glorious joy, which is ours in Christ. It is on earth, it being done as it is in heaven. That's our pursuit. That's what we want. And so we're praying, oh God, oh Jesus, King of joy, make us glad in you. Because that is ultimately what glorifies him in the kingdom to come. And that's what glorifies him here and now. Let me remind you of the short statement, so profound and helpful. Many of you have probably memorized this. You'll start repeating it in your mind when I start get it going. It's the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks that great question of what is the chief end of man? Do you remember what it is? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There are those two things, to glorify him and to enjoy him. What does it really mean? It really means when you see what Peter believes, when you see what Peter is telling, how do you glorify God? 
You do it by enjoying him. That is the way that you glorify God. You say, well, that's great. But why is Rush not consistently like this? Why is his life not full of joy if that's what he believes? And the simple answer is that my desires for happiness are simply too weak. That's what C.S. Lewis taught us in this brief little bit of his teaching. Listen to it. It's on the screen. You can read along in your heart. He said, our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Why is it that my life is lacking joy? It's because I'm far too easily pleased. Have you ever looked at a maybe a wandering Christian or someone who seems to be backslidden or someone who, who is out in the world drinking up of all of the, that the world has to offer. You want to reach this person with the gospel and you, you look at them and, and you talk about them with other Christians as you're praying for them and you say something like this, you know, he or she is just too focused on being happy and enjoying life to get serious about Jesus, just too focused on being happy and enjoying the world and enjoying life. But that's not the problem. That's not my problem. My problem is not that I'm too focused on being happy and enjoying the world and life. My problem is that I'm not focused enough. My desires are not strong enough. Because if they were, if I really wanted to be happy, if I really wanted to enjoy life, I would throw all of those things away and I would run to Christ. Because in his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So why do I so slowly run? Why sometimes do I not run at all? Because I don't really want to be happy. I don't want it enough. When we really get serious about happiness, when we really get serious about joy, when we really get serious about the enjoyment of the gifts and promises of God, then, then we will get serious about knowing our king. Because our king is the king of joy. We are far too easily pleased. Hear it again as we come to a close this morning, those incredible words, Psalm 1611, something that is, has been regrettably so often lost on me. You will make known to me the way of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. What do we need? We need that good news to be preached to us again and again and again. Because that's what the good news is about, isn't it? The good news is about joy. 
It is about happiness. It is about gladness. It is about enriching our lives spiritually so that our hearts will sing with joy. And it is what ultimately makes us serious about our king, who is the king of joy. Final application is another simple one. It's one we hear often, and we need to hear it again and again. It is this. If you really want to be glad, if you really want to be full of joy, if you really want to be happy, preach the good news to yourself until your hearts sing with joy. Keep preaching the good news of what Christ has done for you. Preach it out into the world. Preach out into the world this king of joy who offers joy in himself, full of glory, inexpressible, even in the midst of suffering. And he's the kind of king who can do it without you ever seeing him. Then or now, but he's the kind of king that will make it in full one day when we will see him again. And that is our ultimate hope. We look forward to that day. It's the source of our joy in this moment, in this season, in these hardships and troubles and trials. That One day our joy will be ultimately filled. We pray that it would be filled today as we look upon him. We know that that begins by coming to Christ. It may be that you're here today and you need to come to Christ by faith, first and foremost. You need to repent of your sin and and run to him as the king of joy, the only person who ultimately could satisfy the longings of your heart. I pray that many people will do that today in churches around the world. And I invite you to stand with me as we pray for that very thing. I'm going to pray for joy I'm going to pray for joy in this room and these hearts and hearts around the world. And I hope that as we move forward through this this very interesting season of Christmas, that you would remember just how wondrous is what we believe and that you would make that your prayer, that many people would be filled with joy because of who Christ is, the King. We pray to you, our King of joy this morning, asking you for that very thing. We ask that you would give us ultimately what only you can. And that would be the kind of happiness of heart, the kind of gladness in life, the kind of joy in you that is only possible by believing in you. It's only possible by loving you. It's only possible by knowing you, receiving you as a gift, a gift of grace. Father, we pray that every heart in this room would be filled with joy this morning. We pray that hearts around the world would be filled with joy because they have come to Christ and seen him, seen him with the eyes of faith in their hearts as the king of joy, the king of the universe, who is bringing all of this together to the very end in a wonderful celebration of your glory and our joy. God, we pray that as we sing now, you would hear our hearts, that it would be evident that we love you, that it would be evident that even though we do not see you now, we believe in you. We pray that would be to your glory and to our gladness and to the good of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.